ഹറീം Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala said ya ayyuhalladhina amanu qū anfusakum wa ahlīkum nāra wa qūduhan nāsu wal hijāra 'alayhā malā'ikatun ghilāzun shidādun lā yā'sūna Allāha mā amarahum wa yaf'aluna mā wa yaf'aluna mā yu'marūn Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala said o oh, you believe <coughs> save yourselves and your families from the fire from the hell fire يا ايها الذين امنوا قوا انفسكم واهليكم نارا سيف يور سيلفز اند اند يور فاميليز فروم ذا هيل فاير وقودها الناس والحجاره ذا فيول اوف ويتش از مان اند ستونز از بيبل اند ستونز ار ذا فيول اوف ذا هيل فاير عليها ملائكه غلاظ شداد لا يعصون الله ما امرهم And on this fire, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has appointed angels who are very severe and very stern and very strong. Ghilazun Shidat. And they carry out the instructions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without their own discretion. They will not... take pity on anybody they will not have mercy on anybody whatever they are instructed to do they will do so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is warning us <coughs> about the hellfire and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically mentioned the families and he put this as the responsibility especially on the head of the family to say save yourself and your family from the fire Now I want to link this back with what we mentioned what I mentioned last uh, lecture on family matters about how the current age that we are living in the age of materialism came to be more or less as a result of the outcome of the industrial revolution in 1746 and thereby the mass production of goods and later on of services and this resulted in the creation of the need for markets it needed it created it created the need for markets it created the need for consumers and so therefore a lot of value engineering was done because people's minds needed to be changed and as i explained last lecture in the last lecture that three things got changed the time of day got changed the source of the roles of parents got changed and the values of people where you got your values from that got changed and thereby was born the modern schooling system as we know it and this schooling system was specifically designed to do some things The schooling system was designed to create people with the kind of values that the materialistic society needed. And I'll come to you in a minute of what those value changes were. The schooling system was also designed for the benefit and convenience of the owners of the schools and for the benefit and convenience of the teachers. the benefit and convenience of students what is best for the students how best can they be taught and how best they can they learn was never part of the equation and it does not is not part of the equation till today and that's the reason why the schools were constructed exactly like factories were constructed grades or classes were arranged by date of manufacture which in terms of in human terms we call age 
what else is the logic to put all eight-year-olds in one class and nine-year-olds in one class and ten-year-olds in one class makes absolutely no sense whatsoever in terms of human psychology because that's not how people learn. In your homes, parents don't segregate children by age. The younger ones learn from the older ones and that's how it's supposed to happen. That's how human beings learn, but not in schools. In schools, they are segregated by data manufacture, which is called age. The seating in the schools is on the basis of space efficiency. And the most efficient way of using space in a room is to put people in, in lines and rows, all facing one way. The fact that the back of somebody's head is not the most inspirational thing to look at all day is, Im is immaterial. The fact that when you put people like that sitting next to one another, you can't talk to someone through your left ear. You need to face them to talk and what you're facing is the back of somebody's head. So it's zero conversation, zero inter interaction between students. And that's why the rule was created to say silence in class. God forbid if you wanted to ever share a thought. How can you have thoughts? You're not supposed to have thoughts. You are supposed to take knowledge from me and you are supposed to shut up and mug up and then was created the great examination system which again was for the convenience of the owners and teachers. How do I show that I, teacher, have done my job? In two ways. One is complete the syllabus. So complete the, the portion. And having done that, how do I prove that I completed it? Random testing of memory of the children to say, what do you remember? Not what do you understand, God forbid. Not what can you apply, God forbid even more. What do you remember? What can you recall? So we created an examination system where you go into an exam, which starts at 9 a.m. and finishes at 11 a.m. And in that examination, we shoot random questions at you. And if you can regurgitate unprocessed information within that specific time frame, then you pass the examination. And if you remember that piece of information, five minutes after, at 11.05, then you fail the examination. And my question, the standard question is that if Mustafa is asked something at uh, between 9 and 11, and Mustafa remembers it at, say, 5 to 11, and I asked Zian the same question and he remembers the answer at 5 past 11. I passed Mustafa and I failed Zian. Why? So does Zian know or he doesn't know? So how do I fail him? But I have to fail him because if I don't fail him, then how do I make sense of my insensible, my, my senseless system? That's the examination system. And in that examination system, the most critical life skill that you as a child and you as an adult will ever need and use in your life, which is collaboration. The ability to work with another person. God forbid if you use that in an examination system, it's called cheating and you are chucked out of the class. Try it and see. Next examination, collaborate <laughs> with the other students. Share your knowledge and see the fun. And that completely senseless system remains till today. And that's why what amazes me is that you have children who go into the system, spend about maybe give or take a year or two this way and that for about 15 years, studying in a school, getting what we like to call education. If someone studies 15 years something, what do you call that person? If I study history for 15 years, full-time dedicated, five days a week, seven days a week, I'm studying only history. What do you call me at the end of 15 years? An expert, a historian expert, right? What do you call a student who graduates from high school, who has spent about 15 years or 60? What do you call him? Nothing. Is he an expert? Nothing. So you are telling me that you have a system where your poor unsuspecting child who has no choice got chucked into it and he's spending 15 years of his life learning something, we have no clue what, and at the end of 15 years he come out of the, comes out of the other end of the tube and you've spent a fortune and at the end of that 
He knows nothing. He has no life skills. He has no skills to earn a living. He has no skills to take care of himself. If you sent him out into the world at the end of the schooling and you say, go away for one month, don't go to any friend's house and don't go to any relative's house, take care of yourself and at the end of one month come back, I'll give you, I can bet you any amount of money he's not going to come back because he'll be dead. He will be dead. You take him and drop him in the middle of some place and say, find your way home, he can't find his way home because he never learned how to find direction. You give him a bunch of ingredients and say, cook a meal and he is lost. He is lost. He just probably just eat his way through the ingredients one at a time. Eat first the carrots, then the celery, then the whatnot. And that's what we like to call schooling. Why did that happen? Because the industrial revolution and the consumerist mindset wanted a certain kind of person. A person who believed in the consumerist values, a person who does not think, a person who will never question the status quo because the people who rule the world do not want you to question the status quo. You will be too much trouble. They want you to obey. They want you to be brain dead. They want you to, to, to yearn and want the things that they want to sell because they can keep selling them. They want you to live beyond your means because that's how the banking system works. If you don't have the money, borrow the money. I lend you the money at, at, at an interest and I make money in the process. That's what they want. They do not want people who will question. They do not want people who will challenge the status quo. They do not want people who will come up with alternate solutions. They do not want people who will say, why are you asking these questions? Why are you doing this? Why does this system exist? They do not want people like that. And that's why I say to you that the problem with the current education system is not that it has failed, but that it is enormously successful. And that is the big problem, because if it failed, then you would change it. But because it is enormously successful, you don't even think about changing it. It's extremely beneficial for the owners of schools. It is extremely beneficial for teachers. It is extremely useless and harmful for students. But who cares about students anyway? So this social re-engineering, this, this value re-engineering, did, certain, certain, did, did certain things. Number one, it changed the meaning of concern. From collective concern to individual concern. I have lived in enough rural places, in villages, and I have, I have stayed with enough village people in the world, in Africa, in India, in Asia, to know how villages work. The way villages work is by collective concern. Collective concern. Each person is concerned about the other person. The commercial world tells us what? Dog eat dog. Devil take the last. And so on. One of my professors in, uh, in the IIM Ahmedabad was a man called Pulin Garg. And Pulin told us a wonderful story which illustrates this change of values. He said that the Ford Foundation had uh, a project which they implemented in a village a small village in UP where they gave they were, they were trying to they were trying to promote uh, metal plow shares you know the, the plow the, the bit that goes into the ground traditionally in our villages in uh, in India in, in North India they use wooden plow shares the whole plow is one thing and it's made of wood so Ford Foundation said that if you use a metal plow share and the metal plow share was, was built in a certain way uh, it breaks up the soil much better so the seeds germination is much better, the soil aeration is much better and so on and so forth. So it was a very useful thing for the farmers to use. So the way they did that was that the guys came there, the American guys came there, they uh, took permission to use two or three fields as experimental fields. Uh, they ran the project for two years. They demonstrated to the villagers, uh, to the villagers that the metal plowshare was a much better thing to use that they would get higher crops and it would be easier, also easier on the, on the, uh, on the bullocks pulling the, 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 the metal plowshare and so on. So they demonstrated all of that and they gave them, they gifted them plowshares. And then they left. And the village was very happy, they were very thankful to them and they said these people came all the way from America to teach us and we are so happy and so on and so on. All this happened. 
they left. Three years later, the project came for evaluation. So they came back, and to their intense surprise, they found that the metal plowshares were not being used. They said, where are the plowshares? What have you done with the plowshares? They said, here, they showed them. They were all piled up in one corner in one hut, rusting. And these people, you know, they blew their minds. They said, so what did we do wrong? And we know our, you know, Indian culture and so on. So we never tell people what, what they do wrong. So people said, no, 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 we are very grateful to you. Thank you so much. You came all the way from America for us and this and that and, we are, and so on. We give you a party. We have a nice meal and whatnot. They said, we didn't come for the meal. Please tell us, why are you not using the plowshare? They said, no, no, it doesn't work for us. But what do you mean it doesn't work for us? We showed you, we demonstrated to you. I mean, you Indians are dumb or what? I mean, they didn't say that, but that was their, in their mind, you know, the crazy Indians. So, we showed you it's beneficial, you benefited from it, still you are choosing to use a method which is less beneficial. Why would you do that? What's wrong with your brains? And they couldn't get the answer. So, they asked Professor Pulitgar, who was a consultant to them, and they mentioned this whole thing to him. So, he said, Pulitgar said, look, I, let me go talk to them and find out. So, Pulitgar said, I went there. And Bulingar used to wear a dhoti and so on. So that, that was, uh, he was a wonderful man and hugely idiosyncratic. And he passed away. And uh, he had uh, the most flowery uh, language vocabulary that I have ever heard. And I owe quite a, quite a number of words that I learned from to him. Um, so he went there. And he said, I went there. I first, uh, you know, day I just uh, sort of chilled it in the village and, you know, sat and drank uh, Arak with the Patel and everybody. And he said, uh, second day, uh, the village elders, they said, uh, we are very happy you came and you visited us and so on. What can we do for you? And that's how conversation moves. You don't, you don't go there and say, why are you not using the plowshare? It's bad manners. So you go there, you, you, you hospitable, so on. People treat you well and so on. And then they ask, they open the door. They said, well, what can we do for you? So Pulin said, I believe these Americans came and they gave you this, these plowshares. So, oh, yeah, of course, they're very nice people, such people, such wonderful people. They came all the way from America for us and they are rich people and powerful people. We are poor people, we are nothing and they came for all this. So Pulin said, yes, all that is fine, but why are you not using the plowshare? And Pulin says, the Patel, the, the head of the village, he said, he, answered, he gave me one line answer and it blew me away. He said, if you use the metal plowshares, what will happen to the family of carpenters who lives in this village? That's it. The entire village decides to have lower yields, to make losses, because if they don't do that, the carpenter family in the village will be out of a living, because that's what the carpenters do. They make the, they make the plows. He said, if you use the metal plowshares, they will have nothing to do. So they, they lose their livelihood. We can't use it. This was the value. Now imagine a world that lives on this value. Imagine a world that lives on these values. And the world did live on these values for centuries. Imagine a world where you, where, and this is the, this is the issue of Islam. Islam says this is what you must do. Rasulullah said that you are responsible for 70 of your neighbors on either side of your door. 70 neighbors. And I can bet you if I ask you individually, the name of your next door neighbor, there will be many people here who will not even know the name of the neighbor. Forget about 70. But this is how Islam is supposed to work. And imagine a society where people are concerned about each other and they are willing, not just concerned, you know, yak, 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 actually willing to put themselves out and spend money and time and resources in order to help the neighbor. So concern, the value was changed, the, the definition of concern was changed from collective concern to individual concern. I am responsible for myself, period, khalas. I am not even responsible for my parents. If they get old, chuck them into an old people's home, send them a Christmas card and I am done. And people say, well, they need you by their side. No, I have got my career, what happens to my career? Well, what happened to your father's and career when you were a kid? What happened to your mother's, mother's career when you were, were screaming your guts out because you had colic as a little baby and she didn't sleep all night and she sat by you? 
what happened to that what about the the, the single fact the single fact that your parents are the people who change your nappies I always tell young people, I said, those who clean your shit have rights on you, believe me. More than anything else. But we forget all that. We forget all that. When it comes the time for their rights, I have my career, I have my this, I have my that. Second value which got changed was goals. From non-monetary to money. Money as a goal. Today, today we wonder, how is it that Imam Al-Ghazali went away for 10 years for his journey of Tazkiyat Tundafs? How is it that Abdullah ibn Mubarak uh, said that I spent 30 years learning Adab before I started learning Ilm? It blows the mind. I mean, how would somebody... What were you doing for 30 years, for God's sake? I mean, 30 years. That's like three times the lifespan of some of these people here and twice the lifespan of most. 30 years doing what? Learning Adab. How else do you think they became scholars of such magnificence that centuries later we take their name with respect and centuries later their thoughts continue and their books continue and people are doing PhDs and how many, how many PhDs are done in the world on Ihya Ululum? Doesn't come out of reading a bunch of books and writing something. Al-Iyahul-Uomuddin is Al-Ghazali from inside. Rahmatullahi. One of the scholars said is that all the books in Islam except the Kitab of Allah and the Sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, all the other books that, are, that exist in Islam were to be wiped out and if only one book remained, that one book would be Iyahul-Uomuddin and that would be sufficient. Goals, different goals, not just money. As I mentioned yesterday, I used to be on the scholarship board of IDB and we had a scholarship we used to give for students for pure science. So someone just wants to study maths or physics or chemistry or something, they would be given a full scholarship or right up to the tertiary level, to, right up to the time you, go, you get into a PhD. And that scholarship money we used to have to send back every year, partially or entirely, because we couldn't get students. Nobody wants to study pure science. You ask them, why don't you want to study pure science? Because oh, we got, what's the salary of a professor? What's the salary of a research, research uh, assistant or a researcher? <coughs> so we say, how else, if you don't do that, if nobody gets into that, how do you push back the boundaries of knowledge? How do you, how do you reach the frontiers of knowledge? How do you discover new things if no one wants to do research? We don't care. So what do you want to do? They want to do something with which there is a price tag attached or where they think they will get some jobs. Goals got changed. Third thing which got, got changed was the, 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 the concept of success from long term to short term. Success is like instant coffee. I must see it right now. So anything which shows me success right now is what I want. The whole computer games theory is based on this. Computer games are designed to give you quick success strokes. So the game has a score, you are scoring and you are moving your score up and so on and so forth. Immediately you are getting success score. <coughs> so it reinforces this lack of patience. Reinforces this entire desire not to work for the long term. Instant success. Reinforces again and again and again and again. Every time you play the game, this is what you are doing. Psychologically you are doctoring yourself. How do you think the people who dominate the world today, when do, would you, have you any clue when they started this, this whole focus to say we want to dominate the world? 300 years ago. Muslims today cannot even think three years ahead. Forget about 300 years. Go to the Muslim world with a project which is long term, which can change the path of destiny for them and you will have to beg like a beggar for money. You won't get money to buy a topi. Although Muslims are very generous, if you go to them with, with something, blood is flowing, children are dying, then they will give you money, like nobody's business. Very, very generous people. Immediately they want results. But you talk about long term, remember you are condemning yourself to that terrible destiny that you are living today. If you don't want to invest in long term projects. Then the 
Fourth thing that God changed was human value. From honor to money. I've said this a, a million times. Rasulullah changed the definition of the HNI, the high net worth individual. He changed the definition of the high net worth individual from Abu Lahab to Abu Bakr The high net worth individual in the time of Nabi was exactly the same definition like we have today, which is somebody who has more money. How he got the money, we don't care. What he does with the money, we don't care. Whether the money is halal, haram, we don't care. As long as he has net worth, meaning money. People actually ask this question, what are you worth? And people are not shamed to answer, I am worth a million dollars. How shameful is that? How utterly, incredibly shameful is that? That you as a human being, Ashraful makhluqat, Khalaqa al-insana min ahsani taqweem, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created you and Allah said, I've created him in the best form. And you put a money value on it. And you say, I'm worth a million dollars. Absolute shame on you. Absolute shame on you. You want a million dollars? So I give you a million dollars, I bought you. And then I use you to clean my boots for the rest of your life. What's that? No shame. Today football teams are sold. Cricket teams are sold. Footballers and cricketers take pride. So and so was sold for so much. These are, these are the actual language used. <coughs> You're not ashamed of that. Are you a dog to be sold? Seriously, ask a question. People buy and sell dogs. They don't buy and sell human beings. But you, I, my, I sold. My price is so much. Inna lillahi wa inna lillahi. <coughs> At least the dog doesn't set his own price. You put, you put a price on the dog. The dog thinks he's worth more than that. Ask any self-respecting dog. <laughs> then the position of a person, that got changed. And this is probably the only positive change that happened. And that positive change was that the position and honor of a person in society got changed from caste and lineage to personal effort. Now this again is not universal because we still have caste and lineage in many countries including ours. But by and large, there was a time when if you weren't born into the right family you could do nothing. There's no way that you could succeed <coughs> because the ceilings were, were, were completely rigid. You had to be born with a title, you had to be born with, uh, into the right family. Uh, and I, I, if that didn't happen then that was it. You, you, you had no way of breaking out of that. But the modern world, the commercial world changed that. I think according to me that's probably the only positive change. That's a very good change. Which is that this was broken. I said no. You can go as high in society as you want provided you make the effort. So you make the effort, you do what needs to be done and then you can. Now of course they didn't, they didn't put any boundaries on that kind of effort. They didn't say do what is halal and not what is haram. But whatever you do, you do. As long as you do that, you can succeed and you can be somebody even if you come from so-called humble uh, a humble background, if you were born into a poor family, uh, you're not born with a title and with lineage and so on, it doesn't matter. Uh, the old boys network and the school tie and so on is not so important. You can actually go up in life. That was, uh, that was the change. These were the values that got changed. <clears throat> Four other critical values that got changed. One was the value got shifted from Saving to spending. There's a premium on spending. And you, need, and you needed to do that because if you have a society which is based on commerce, you can't have people who are saving money. People who are saving money are bad news. You want people to spend money. So the moment you say spend money, then the question becomes, what I'm buying, is it useful or not useful? <clears throat> so you needed to change the, the, the concept of useful. And how do you do that? By moving the uh, focus away from the utility of the product and give it some other, you know, some other need to buy, which is where the issue of branding comes in. You don't buy a shirt because you need a shirt, you buy a shirt because it is Tommy Hilfiger shirt. You want to pay a price to advertise somebody else's brand. Now, how, how dumb is that? 
If someone wanted me to wear a, bra a brand, then I, I would definitely wear a brand, absolutely no problem. But I would tell him to pay me to wear that brand. Why must I, why must I advertise your brand and pay money to advertise that? I don't do it. I, I wear my own branded clothing. My brand. So, moving from saving to spending. Don't save. Spend. This is today the big difference between our Eastern thinking and Western thinking. In the Western, in the Eastern thinking, still people say, well, you know, save for the uh, daughter's marriage, for example, which is again one, one negative thing that has come in, but meaning that save for the children and leave something for the children. In Western society, sorry, you are on your own. We bring you up and at age 17, we chuck you out of the house and that's the end of the story. And of course, that's why they check you out of the house at age 70. When you, you check them out at age 17, that's okay. That's also part of the story. Second one was own, not share. So, spend, not save. Own, not share. I must have my own. And you see this in the nursery. Two kids, three years old, four years old, fighting over a toy and the parents say, no, no, don't worry, I'll give you, I'll get you your own. They won't say, share with your brother, no. And this translates 40 years later into <coughs> legal battles over company ownership, over property ownership because I can't share with my brother. My brother is my enemy. I have to fight my brother for the property. Legal cases. Why? Because of the training that the parents gave me from the time I was a year old and two year old, two -year -old child. So own, not share. And remember, see how all of this translates back into commercialism. If you say don't share, spend, the money is going into the pool, so commercialism. If you say own, not share, it means now you need two and three and four of the same thing. Because nobody wants to share. If you have, more, if you have a bigger house, I must have my own room. What, what are you going to be doing? In your, why must you have your own room? No, 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 my own room. So it means houses have to be bigger and so on and so forth. So own, not share, back again. Then greed, not contentment. And this greed is hugely, hugely funded and it's hugely propagated. All teen magazines, all uh, men's magazines, all women's magazines, all kinds of celebrity shows, all kinds of how the high and mighty live and how the... You will not live like that for a billion years even if you live that long. You will never make that kind of money. And hopefully if you did make that kind of money, you would not have that kind of a brain which spent the money like that instead of spending it on use, some useful things. But still you watch out. Everything is focused on something I must have, what I don't have. To create discontentment in yourself. Icons of physical beauty create discontentment in yourself. I am not as beautiful as so-and-so. I must try to become as beautiful as so-and-so. You will never become as beautiful as so-and-so. For the, for, for the simple reason that you are 40 years old and that so-and-so is 20 years old. You will never become like that because your genes are against it. That is a different body type and your body type is different. You will never become that because you got to choose between biryani and eating celery. And what kind of a choice is that? I'm not a rabbit for God's sake. And the list continues. <coughs> I must always have something I don't have. And my body must be something like I don't have. My face must be something like I don't have. My hair must be something like I don't have. The car I'm driving which is perfectly nice and I was enjoying it all this while, now suddenly I find I'm discontent with it because I saw this other one which is, oh my God, man, that is my dream car, man. <laughs> so what are you driving? I'm driving my nightmare. That's also a dream but that's a nightmare. Greed, greed, more, more, want, 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 want. No contentment. So the contentment got taken away. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi said, the greatest wealth that Allah can give you is contentment. To be content and say, Alhamdulillah, with what Allah has given. That got taken away. Women's role changed in the society. And why did that change? Once again, the same commercial thinking. You have factories, you need workers. So, give or take a few, say uh, a population has 20-20-20, let, let, or 33-33, I'm, I'm doing a random calculation, say 33% say men, 33% women, 33% children. I mean, if this was the uh, configuration of a population, 
Obviously, it would not be exact, but I'm saying roughly speaking. Now, traditionally, you had only 33% of the family as available workforce in your factories. But you need more because you are the capitalist, you have the money, you want to set up more factories. Where are the workers going to come from? So where is the place of the workers? Same society. How to get them? Get more out into the, into, the, into the workplace. How do you get the women into the workplace? Because the women look after the children. So no, 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 no. There is no need for the mother to look after the children. Catch all the children together, chuck them into a school, put one person to take care of 60 instead of one person taking care of two. So you solve that problem. And now this one person who is at home, what do you do? Take her into the factory. Now why would she want to go and work? Which sensible woman would want to go and spend eight hours a day in a factory making widgets or something? I mean, this is what the majority population does. Or some other version of widgets. Because just because you're sitting in an air-conditioned office and you're, you're, you're sitting behind a computer and answering phone calls doesn't make it anything better than widgets. So why would they want to do that? So you need to change the mind and say, this is freedom. This is self-actualization. This is where you gain your self-respect. So this woman said, well, you know what, I thought I had self-respect. <clears throat> I thought I had honor. I am the mother of these children. And I am bringing them up to be great people. I am the wife of this husband and he's a wonderful guy and I am trying to create a beautiful environment, a beautiful home. I, th I thought this was honor. They said, no, 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 no. You are some old-fashioned cluck. Forget that. That's not honor. You need money. Money makes the world go round. Why must you ask your husband for money? Why must he give it to you? Take on your own. So go, go out into the workforce. Now, okay, so I decide I'm going out into the workforce. So in the workforce now, I used to wear a veil. I'm talking about Western society. Don't think I'm talking about Muslim muhajibat. Western society. I used to wear a veil. I used to wear full-sleeved clothing. I used to wear long skirts. Very graceful, looks very nice. But next to a machine, that is death. Because your skirt will get caught in the machine and then you turn into, a, you come out to the other end as mincemeat. So we don't want that. And not because we care about your death, but that's nuisance for us. We have to pay workman compensation if you chop off your, your leg or a hand. So we don't want to do that. So what do you do? You can't obviously see very well with your veil, so take the veil off. You don't need all this commodious, nice looking, but highly inconvenient, loose clothing, take it off. What must you do? Wear clothing close to the body. Take the veil off. How will a woman take the veil off when she's been wearing a veil and she thinks this is part of her honor? Show her, man, look, this is the, the, the whole beauty of a woman is her hair. And you want to hide that. Why would you want to hide that? So the whole focus on beauty as defined by the commercial context is to show what you have. If you have it flaunted, if you have it flaunted, get a beach body. Why? Because you've got to wear a bikini. And so on and so on and so on. Main purpose is what? Get more workers into the workplace. Nothing to do with women's freedom or anybody's freedom. To bring this about more, beauty pageants. Who are the judges of beauty pageants? When was the last time you saw women judging beauty, beauty pageants? When was the last time you saw a beauty pageant where, which had only women? And of course, Muslims are too dumb to see this, so they have a Muslim women beauty pageant, for God's sake. I mean, really, I tell you, we have to be the most dumb people in the whole world. I mean, if the thing is wrong, the thing is wrong. Meaning that you are, you are commoditizing women, you are objectifying women. You want to put women on a, on a stage and people are sitting there judging and saying, this one is more beautiful than that. I did that once upon a time when I was judging horses. Seriously. You don't do that with human beings. You can do that with horses and cows. Not with human beings, you treat them with respect. What do you mean more beautiful? Mean what? Her nose is slightly this way, and this one nose is slightly that way. I mean, that's a. That's, so, Allah, this, this is a human being, for God's sake. You don't judge them on that basis. Body measurements. And then to uh, the eye wash, there is always one question to say, 
judge intelligence. What will you do with the money which you get? And you get some brilliant answers. I mean, <laughs> that, is, that is the best part of the beauty page. The intelligence show. You get some really amazing answers. That's why I said, how dumb can you get? I mean, how is it that women can't see through this thing? And if you want statistics, I'll tell you that 2014, we are sitting in 2015, 2014 statistics, comparison between wages for men and wages for women in the United States of America. And the same thing applies in Europe. 2014 statistics show that women get 80% of the wage that a man gets for the same job. Meaning that the woman gets 20% less money for doing the same work that a man does in America. Ask why. So where is this women's equality that you are talking about? Women's equality in terms of how many clothes you can take off. Why? Because as a man, what do you want to see? More or less? So if it is so equal, how come you pay the woman less money because of her gender? The, 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 the group that actually the NGO which, which publishes this data actually says we are not less valuable. And wallahi they are not less valuable. Islam says they are equally valuable if not more. But people don't like that because Islam also says wear a hijab and you don't like that. You want to have one leg in each boat. That's a good way to drown. So what must you do? Two quick things and I'm going to finish. One is teach values first. Teach values first. Why? Because values drive behavior. Behavior drives results. And this is GE's slogan. It's not one of mine. Values drive behavior. And behavior drives results. So create a schooling system. A schooling system that teaches integrated holistic education in an integrated holistic fashion. Not this stuff which we have. And I'm not going into the whole area of schooling. The whole area of schooling is a vast subject. I have done 15 years of research on it. So I can call myself an expert on it. And I don't have to call myself an expert because I get invited to speak internationally on it. So there are a whole lot of dumb people who think I'm an expert. Don't tell them otherwise. Integrated holistic teaching, not the stuff that you teach here. That's what you must create, integrated holistic schools. As I said, I'm not going into that, what it is and so on and so forth. Even when we have time and opportunity, we'll talk about that, but not here. Here is, we're looking at family values. So we need to change the way we teach. Now the values we need to, to inculcate, and again, I'm just going to list the values, maybe elaborate a little bit of one or two of them because of time. But just for the listing, number one value to teach is courage. <coughs> courage. There's a vast absence of courage in the world today. Almost every single problem that we have in the world today is because people are afraid to stand up and say what needs to be said. People are afraid. You need to teach the value of courage. The second one you need to teach is the value of family. That family is sacred. That family must take precedence. You must be concerned about your siblings. You must be concerned about your parents. You must be concerned about your children. You must be concerned about your husband and your wife. The roles of the husband and the wife. The roles of the children and the parents. These must be taught. The role of the husband is to be the role model for the whole family. Is to live a life of such magnificence. A life of such honor that the children look up to the father as their number one role model in life. I do this exercise, I've done this for years in country after country after country when I'm speaking to parents and teachers. I tell people, think of a role model. And I tell them very clearly, don't say Rasulullah because if that was really the case, then you wouldn't be the way you are. So don't, don't give me that bunkum. Think of a role model. Who is your role model? And then ask them the question, is it a parent? I ask them the question, is it a parent or a teacher? How, for how many of you is your role model a parent or a teacher? And I've never ever 
irrespective of the population, irrespective of the nation, irrespective of the nationality, irrespective of the religion. I have never ever got a score of less of more than 5%. Only 5% or less of a population has a parent as a role model or a teacher as a role model. For 95% of people in the world, a parent and a teacher are not role models. Tragically, parents and teachers have the maximum face time with children. We are living in a profoundly sick society. And to use the words of the quote of uh, J. Krishnamurti, I hope I'm quoting it correctly. He said, it is not a sign of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. It's not a sign of health to, to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. You need to stand up and fight. And for that you need courage, which we don't teach, which we don't have. Role of the father, I, role of the mother is what? To create harmony, to create sukoon in the house. To be the symbol of nurturing and caring and comforting. Not the symbol of the cook who feeds and overfeeds the children. Mother seems to have only one concern. Bacha nahi khara. Kha kha ke mar ja raha. Nahi kha se khara. Usko dekho thai lege sarga hai. Kaisa hawa hawa bare uske andar. Khila khila ke bare. Maipa ka isoj khata. Now that is bad news for the wife who is going to come at some point in time. She is coming on a, with a handicap. Because this one will eat only the mother's cooking. So I tell these young girls who want to get married, the first thing you go into the house is you tell your mother, I love your cooking. Absolutely. I eat your hands. I eat your hands. I eat your hands. I eat your hands. I कैसा रहता उन्हें 30 साल तक उसको ब्रेन वॉश करी मैरिज खाना मैरिज खाना मैरिज खाना बोलते तो झगड़ा पड़ो ना को कह के पड़ते उनको बोलो आ भाई आप क्या से शादी करी उसको नहीं तो नहीं करती थी आपका आपके हाथ का खाना बोल के मैं उसको शादी कर ली नहीं तो कहीं पर जरूरत नहीं बोलती The role of the women is this. Today, husband and wife, they have converted the family into a battleground. Their whole life is focused on who can score. So he will say something and he scores. Then he doesn't know. <laughs> For every one shot of his, the woman has got a whole, <laughs> like about ten or more. And then she scores and he scores and she scores. And that's the, that is life. And believe me, the children are watching this. The children are watching this from the time they were knee-high to a jackrabbit. And they understand that very well. And they understand the politics and they'll manipulate the devil out of you. <coughs> the roles of the family must be explained. Respect for each other. Honoring each other. Integrity. Teach integrity. Teach honesty. Fourth value. The issue of quality. Quality means attention to detail. Attention to detail. I do it all the time. I said to my dear brother who's vanished somewhere, oh, there, there he is, sitting with his head down. There is, um, under my musalla, there is another piece of carpet, which he, yesterday he told me, I will put it in the center. I said, fine. Today I go there, I find it's to the right. So I called him, I said, according to you, is it the center? Because I want to know whether his eyesight is something is wrong with it. <laughs> now he might think I'm, fool, I'm a fool, that I'm insisting on this stupid thing, but it's not a stupid thing, it's the issue of detail. What is, how, how focused are you towards symmetry? If you say something is the center, is it the center? It's hugely important. It's absolutely massively important. I said, in, in, in one meeting I said to somebody that I will not hire someone who writes me a letter with spelling mistakes. If you write me a letter with, with spelling mistakes, then you just fired yourself before you got hired. So people say this is crazy. I mean, you are hiring an IT engineer, you are hiring somebody for some skills that the person knows. Why are you concerned about 
their, uh, their spellings and their writing. I said, because that spelling and writing is to me a reflection of that person's self-respect. In a world where he has the tools to check spelling, to check grammar, he doesn't even have to know spelling anymore. I mean, at least in my day, we had to know spelling. But today, you can actually get, get along with pretty bad spelling. If he does not do that, what does it show? It shows that he has no attention to quality. He doesn't care about details. I don't want to hire a person like that. That's dangerous. It's dangerous to have a person who's not concerned about details. And if you think I'm talking about rocket scientists, I'm talking about ordinary people. How safe is it to hire a cook who's not concerned about details like washing their hands? How would you like to eat food? The cook just went to the toilet and came back and started cooking without washing their hands. You want to eat food like that? How would you like to have a driver who is not concerned about details? The minor detail that there is a cycle on, the, on your left of the car. We will see after it gets knocked. You get the point I am saying? Details are critical. Critical. Quality is critical. Teach quality. Teach compassion and concern for others. Teach generosity. I have said this before. When you give children pocket money, Ask them how much of that pocket money they spent in charity. By all means, make it up to them. Don't, don't give them every time because he'll get, the, he'll, he'll get the, the spin on it. Then he'll say, I spent so much in charity, he gets it back from you. Then there's no point. There's no point in that. Let him spend in charity for the love of charity. And then later on, maybe you make it up, make it up to him if you want. But let him understand the value of spending in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and getting reward for it. Not, not getting the money back from you. Ask them this question. Teach them budgeting. How many, how many of us grew up without being taught how to use money, how to manage money? Nobody taught me how to manage money. And I managed it pretty badly until I learned. But this is a key skill. It's an absolutely critical skill that you must teach your children how to manage money. How do you budget? How do you earn? How do you spend? What is good to spend? What is good not to, what is good not to spend? And so on and so forth. How to manage money must be taught. And then... Teach them commitment to a task. If you give your word, it's a matter of your honor. It's literally a matter of your honor. If you say, I will do something, I will come, I will meet you at this time. It's not a matter. It is a matter of your honor. It's a matter of your self-respect. If you say, I will do something and you don't do it, it means you have no self-respect. And see how this translates. That's why we have a society today where even though in Islam, a marriage is something that is a matter of grace. A marriage is something that is a matter of dignity. A marriage is something where a man who is a man, who looks like a man, who feels and walks and talks like a man, goes and asks for the hand of a woman from her father and he spends whatever needs to be spent in that process. He is the one who gives the mahar, he is the one who has a walima, he is the one who brings his wife, who honors her, who spends on her. Rasulullah said the best of charity is to spend on your own family. But what do we have today? We have a system where a man goes and stands in the market like a goat and says, how much will you give for me? You want your daughter to marry me? Give me a dowry. Buy me. I'm a goat. Disgrace, absolute disgrace. How can you take money from a woman to marry her? That shows that you are, you have absolutely zero self-respect. No self-respect whatsoever. Totally, completely shameful. Quite apart from being totally, completely haram in Islam. But how does that happen? Because we don't teach self-respect. Self-respect gone a long time. You can't keep your word, man. What respect have you got? You, you say something, you will do it, you can't do it. I mean, you need to be reminded. What kind of a thing is that? Teach those values. Teach this value of absolute shame. If, if you find somebody who is taking dowry, believe me, don't go to that wedding, you know, hound the guy until he doesn't do it. And people say, no, but what can I do my family? What family? The woman is marrying all of them or the woman is marrying you? Who, who is she marrying? You are the one marrying. Yes, I, you say, I will not take a dowry, period. Khalas, no arguments whatsoever. No family, no nothing. It, this is haram. This is a complete sellout. It's a total shameful thing. So teach these values. And then teach them the tools. First tool to teach 
is ta'aluk ma'allah. Introduce your child to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? Because that is the purpose why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created you and He created him. To teach the person that he has to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Teach them to connect with Allah Jalla Jalalu. Ta'aluk ma'allah. How to connect with Allah. And the way of connecting with Allah is through His Kalam, is through the Quran, is through Salah, is through reading the Quran, understanding the Quran, living the Quran. And teach them taqwa which happens automatically as a result of this. The concern for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala jalla jalla. In everything, will Allah be pleased with this? I know people are told, I've said this story several times before. Where this friend of mine, is, we were going somewhere and his little boy was uh, in the car with us. He was a four years old or five years old. And he says to his father, he says, uh, Daddy, uh, did Allah put in your heart to drop me to my friend's place? So I said, this four-year-old kid is asking the father, did Allah put in your heart? So I asked the father, I said, what's the story? He said, no, you know, he said, my wife and I, we've always uh, uh, taught him that anything he wants, we say, ask Allah. Anything he wants, ask Allah. From the time he was, literally from the time he could walk, he said, he wants a chocolate. Mom, can I have a chocolate? Ask Allah. If Allah puts in my heart, I will give you. So he says that when he was little, he used to carry around his little musalla, his janimas. Ask Allah, he put his janimas and stand, Allah give me chocolate. <laughs> so the condition, so now anything he asks Allah, then he will come and say, Mom, did, did Allah tell you to give me chocolate? See, Allah told me to give me chocolate. Here, chocolate. So he said that morning, we were going in, this was New York. He said, this friend of mine was dropping me somewhere. So he said, uh, when I told him I'm, I'm, I'm picking up, uh, picking me up and he said, my friend lives there, can you drop me on the way? So he said, I told him, I said, you can get into the car. If Allah puts in my heart, I will drop you. Otherwise, you, you come with me to, the, to where we are going. So he was not interested in listening to my bayan and all that. So he wanted to go to his friend's house. So he says, daddy, I asked Allah 40 times. <laughs> I told you, you better, you better drop him because, because <laughs> we don't know what else he will ask Allah before that. If you don't drop him, we don't know what else he's going to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I said, better drop him before that. Yeah? Teach, teach children, teach children these things. So, ta'aluk with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then, the beauty of the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When they build this dialogue with Allah, you will automatically, they will build tawakkul on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Imagine that, that, that child from day one, he, uh, he knows only to ask Allah. They build tawakkul on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Factor Allah into the equation because he is in it anyway. <coughs> when you make a plan for anything, where is Allah in this plan? I ask a lot of my uh, family business clients, big, big uh, business families, Muslim families, when I consult with them and we sit with, uh, with their, you know, uh, vision and their, and, their, and their plans and strategies and so on, I always ask this question. I ask them, I'm, see, I'm seeing your whole plan and I'm seeing all your balance sheets and whatnot and, you know, your, your assets and liabilities and sources of, uh, sources of funds and sinks of funds and so on. I say, where is Allah in this? And you, you usually get us. Except for one or two families who know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, you get a sense, sense of shock. Allah in this? How do you mean? We're talking business here. Yeah, you're talking business. Where is Allah in this? And because you don't factor Allah into it, you get into deals to deal with interest and you get into financial transactions which are haram and you get into business transactions which are haram because Allah is not in the deal. But believe me, Allah is in the deal. Whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not, Allah is in, the, in that deal. The pleasure of Allah matters. The anger of Allah matters. Halal matters. Haram matters. There is barakah in halal. There is halakat in haram. And that's why it's very important. Factor Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala into the equation. Tawakkul on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala jalla jalla. Beauty and value of the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The fact that following the sunnah is not inconvenience. It is not something which is uh, worthless. It is something which is very, very important because this is how the doors of the treasures of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala open for you. This is how the angels will walk with you. This is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will solve your problems before you come to the problem. 
by following the sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is how you convert every action of yours into an action of ibadah. Where Allah will actually reward you for that action. You would have done that action anyway. But when you do the action according to the sunnah, Allah actually gives you a reward for that same action. Teach the children these, these values. And for that, the source is the seerah. Read the seerah of Rasulullah Wasallam. Make this absolutely critical reading in your homes. Read the seerah. The son of, of uh, Saad uh, ibn Abi Waqqas used to say that my father used to gather the whole family and he would tell us stories about Rasulullah the Sahaba studied the seerah of Rasulullah Make this absolutely essential in your homes. It's a shameful thing that our children do not, un do not know who Muhammad is. And then teach them four other things. Decision making. The tools of decision making. My brothers and sisters, our children are going to face a world that we know nothing about. We know nothing about the world that our children are going to face. Yet we are their asset and we have to teach them how to deal in the world which we know nothing about. How are you going to do that? So obviously you can't tell them this will happen, that will happen because you don't know what will happen. What you can do is teach them the tools and then make dua for them that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows them to use those tools correctly. But teach them the right tools. And as I mentioned to you, one tool I already mentioned which is managing money. Second tool is decision making. What are the ways of decision making? And whole, all of these are the stuff I teach and there's a whole list of these things. Third one is conflict resolution. How to deal with conflicts. This ummah is divided, <coughs> broken up because we don't know how to deal with conflict. How do you address, if you have a, you have a difference of opinion with somebody, how do you address that? Conflict resolution. Fifth one is communication which includes manners, which includes adab, how to speak to somebody, what is the way. You will be surprised how many phenomenally important things happen just because you smile. And how perfectly good things will go sour because you walk in like the living dead. It's simple as that. Nabi Sallallahu said a smile is sadaqah. But we have to take you to a dentist to extract that smile. Huh? Those who smile easily, those who have a good, happy uh, demeanor, believe me, this is, a, this is an asset you take, you can take to the bank. Literally, it's an asset you can take to the bank. And those who don't have that, there's nothing great about that. That's a liability. So, communication and manners. And the last one is creativity, imagination and creativity. It's very sad that I have to say that teach children imagination and creativity because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created them with imagination and creativity. But unfortunately you send them to schools where that's the first thing which is destroyed. Absolutely number one thing which is killed is creativity and imagination. And I'll tell you a little story with that and we end. There is a wonderful teaching story which is about this little boy called Tommy. The teacher called Gave, a, gave an essay project to the class and said, write your dream, an essay about your dream. So all the children wrote their essays about their dream and the usual dream of, you know, I, have my, my, I must have my own house and my this car and that car and whatnot. And Tommy wrote his own essay, his own dream. So when Tommy brought this uh, essay, the teacher looked at this essay and said, Tommy, what kind of a thing is this? This is ridiculous. I mean, this is a dream. What kind of a dream is this? It's completely unrealistic. Sorry, can't give you marks for this. Wrote a big zero on the thing. Now poor Tommy, obviously, his face fell and he, you know, who likes that kind of a thing? So, Tommy is so sad. So the teacher looked at Tommy and they said, oh, poor, maybe I should not have said that even. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. And uh, so she called Tommy back. She said, Tommy, I'll tell you what. Why don't you take this back and rewrite it and bring it back? And I'll give you some marks. So Tommy said, okay, he took, it as, took his essay back. The next morning, Tommy brought the essay and the teacher took a look at the essay and she said, Tommy, it's the same thing, you haven't changed anything. What happened? Didn't you understand what I told you? Tommy says, yes, teacher, I understood what you told me. He said, but I decided. I decided that I will keep my dream and you keep your marks. 
right? That is the value of creativity and imagination. The biggest asset you can give your children is this, creativity and imagination, because they're going out into a world which we know nothing about. Give them the tools, not just to survive in the world, but to hugely succeed, to change that world into a world which is worth living in. Today we're living in a world which is a disaster, which is an absolute disaster in every aspect. Not just religion, it's a disaster period. We, are, we, we, know, we, we claim we know so much, but we are busy destroying this world. You need to change that. You need to create a whole generation which will change that. And that is the, to me, that is the task and that is the challenge of, especially of people who want to be in the field of education. Especially of them, but also challenge for everybody. All the parents and so on and so forth. Because you are, you are any parent is already in the, in the field of education. Being in the field of education doesn't mean necessarily that you have to run a school. As long as you've got somebody listening to you, you are in the field of education. And this is what we need to do. Transfer this forward. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable us to live our religion, the religion of Islam, because this is the most beautiful religion that we have. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give you the power to live this religion, to, to learn the Quran, to live the Quran. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to fill your lives with the barakah of the Quran. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to fill your hearts with the love for His Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to fill your hearts with His nur and to save you from the darkness of misguidance and ignorance of, and shaitan. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to save you from the, from the darkness of rebelliousness and, and sinning against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give you from sources that you cannot imagine. I ask Allah to make you a muttaqi and to extract you from your difficulties. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make you a mutawakkil who has tawakkul on him and to provide you from sources that you cannot imagine. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept your duas before your hands come down when you raise your hands for dua. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept your ibadat and to, to make your ibadat beautiful to a way where they are acceptable to him, Jalla Jalalu. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to be pleased with you and never to be displeased. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyil kareem wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in bi rahmatika ya rahmatullahi.